Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month, bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For four, over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at bioticsresearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine, and sometimes the most amazingly superb heart minds are, are back with us, and such is the case today, where I'm just really, really delighted to be talking to, uh, you know, just a wonderful woman who's become a dear friend of mine, and also uh, whip-smart inspiration for so many of us. I'm talking about none other than Dr. Sarah Gottfried. Um, as you know, she's board-certified physician scientist and the three-time New York Times bestselling author. She graduated from Harvard Medical School and uh, MIT. She completed a residency at University of California at San Francisco. Over the past three decades, Dr. Gottfried has seen more than 25,000 patients and specializes in identifying the underlying cause of her patient's condition at, to achieve true and lasting health transformation, not just simply management. She's a wife, a mom, a researcher, a certified yoga teacher, uh, and so much more. Her books, as I know you're familiar with, in fact, you know, go into our podcast archives and, and, and listen to where I've talked to Sarah before. Uh, she's written The Hormone Cure, The Hormone Reset Diet, Younger, and the latest book that we're going to be talking about today is Brain Body Diet. Dr. Sarah Gottfried, welcome and a big virtual hug to you. Hey, Kara, so happy to be here. <laughs> First of all, like, you know, you and I were just talking. You're, you're a real authentic human. You, you know, we, our very first conversation was going on six years ago. It, and I was actually interviewing you a long time ago. And, and as I was just, it was a pivotal conversation. Part of it was because you were so authentic. And you actually kind of shared some truth to me, I mean, I had just done a red eye flight and I was just lying on the desk 
you know, just <laughs> slumped over, you know, attempting to pull out a uh, cheery self for this interview. And you called me on it. You're like, what are you doing? Like, why are you even in your office, Kara? But it was this conversation. I had just met you and it was your authenticity that drew me to you and continues to um, just really make me love and appreciate this brain heart of yours. Um, so anyway, on that note, talking about brain body diet, you share an incredibly authentic story that, you know, kind of led you to the book. And I just, I want you to, to talk to it, talk, talk to me about it here. You got it. And thank you for that. I mean, I, it's, uh, I feel like too often as physicians, as practitioners, we set up this front of kind of having it all together you know, like, here's the seven steps to burn your belly fat. And I, I think the truth is yeah. that so many of us struggle with many things, whether that's a relationship or um, the way that we're feeding ourselves, not just nutritionally, but emotionally. And so I do think that sharing our vulnerability is such an important part of transformation. So yes, this book was very interesting because in 2015, I set myself up for a fall. Yeah. And, and I wonder for our listeners if maybe you're doing this to yourself. So I set myself up for the concussion that I had. I had hardly paid attention to my body. I'm much more, or at least I was, much more like a dictator, like a drill sergeant. You know, like, okay, you're going to do this 10-hour live stream in San Diego you're just going to march through it. Like even if it's a death march and you don't get to eat and you don't get to pee, like you're just going to do it and you're going to show up and you're going to give 110%. Like that's just mm. my style. It's kind of my mm. personality. Yeah. So what happened was I was standing in the kitchen at 10 PM with a group of friends that I did this live stream with. And there are many people that, you know, um, Alan Christensen, Srini Pillay, Dave Asprey was there, JJ Virgin. There was a group of people and I hadn't eaten all day long. Now, I know that I have dysregulation of the HPATG, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal thyroid gonadal axis. I know that I have issues with the way that cortisol and insulin talk to each other. Uh -huh. I know that I have a tendency toward hypoglycemia. In fact, I'll just foreshadow that I keep texting you photos of right. my, <laughs> my continuous <laughs> glucose monitor and yeah, these yeah. episodes of hypoglycemia that I have that, you know, can dip below 50. So I'm standing there in the kitchen. We're trying to decide what to eat after 10 hours of filming. And I fell. I passed out. I hit my head on the back of a stove and then mm. on the floor, a cold tile floor. Mm. And what was scary about that there are many things that were scary, but what was really scary was that I woke up and then I had what looked to the doctors in the room to be seizures. So I had these tonic-clonic movements. Um, and so that's when they called an ambulance. And so I, I ended up in the ER. They attributed this to hypoglycemia. And I then had a pretty moderate to severe post-concussion syndrome afterwards where I, I had trouble with balance. I had, you know, what mainstream medicine told me to do was to lie in a dark room <laughs> and yeah. not get stressed, which, you know, is what they tell you when they have no idea what else to tell you. And so I talked to various functional neurologists who gave me some more helpful information about how to deal with the neuroinflammation that I had. 
And that's what really got me started with looking beyond the portal that I have, where I look at functional medicine starting through the lens of hormones, hormone disruption, hormone dysregulation. And it got me to look beyond that and to really understand, okay, what's going on with neuroinflammation? What could I be doing to prevent it? How could I stop it in its tracks? And that's what led to this book, Brain Body Diet. That's extraordinary. Well, what are the, I mean, get, what, what are the nuggets that you want us to glean? Well, there's a few nuggets. I would start first with, let's connect the dots between brain and body because mainstream medicine is not going to do it for you. Yeah. So I'll give you a quick example. In 2017, I went through surgery for the first time. I took a course of antibiotics for this surgery. And when I finished the course of antibiotics, what I noticed were two big changes. The first, mm-hmm. one, the first was that I felt anxious for the first time in my life. And you know me, I'm not yeah. an anxious person. I'm pretty calm. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I had fat gain and I tracked my body composition pretty carefully. So this was like 15 pounds of fat that kind of showed up in a short amount of time. Wow. So I had insulin resistance. I had an elevated hemoglobin A1C. My fasting glucose was higher my insulin was higher. And so this got me to connect the dots for myself between brain and body and realize that, oh, when you look at the literature, one or more courses of antibiotics is associated with a 15 to 44% increased risk of anxiety. One course of antibiotics or more is associated with a 23 to 50 plus percent increased risk of depression. It's associated with insulin resistance, autoimmunity, Uh, issues with learning and memory. And so that was the way that I connected the dots between brain and body. And then as I started to look at it in my patients, I could see it everywhere I looked. And I know, Kara, you actually do this. Like this is, I would presume, this is the lens from which you practice functional medicine. But for me, as a gynecologist, it wasn't really the first place I looked. Like it's, it's more the second and the third place that I looked. Like what's going on in the gut? What's the gut microbiome? brain access. Yeah. So that's one of the the main points of the book. I mean, ultimately, this kicked off an N of one experiment. I had, I was diagnosed with SIBO. I did uh, microbial testing, um, looking at the microbiome before and after the course of antibiotics. And I had a loss of about 87% of my microbial diversity. I had increased intestinal permeability. I had all the hallmarks of a disrupted gut-brain axis. But I would say a second point is that the female brain is really completely different from the male brain. We've got a different set of biological imperatives in order to feel our best, especially as we get older. Estrogen's the master regulator of the female body. And I think in some ways women need a wake-up call about this because after the age of 40, the gut-brain axis really is in trouble. Yeah. And so I think we have to pay attention to this. And and we know that if you just look at images of the male versus female brain, you can tell with about 85% certainty whether one is male or female. Now, I live in San Francisco, so I'm a little cautious about saying this with, you know, gender non-binary terms that we use now, but this is at least what we know from the literature. And then the last point is that, and I think you're already on board with this, if you want to correct the gut-brain axis or brain-body disconnection, 
you have to use personalized lifestyle medicine. Like no prescription pill is going to do it for you. So I would say those are the three main points of this new book. It's extraordinary, Sarah. It's, and well, and also, you know, just thinking about what you've just said, you know, where you're widening your lens, you know, our original conversation, which incidentally, folks, if you're interested in hearing Sarah's therapeutics, and I think we have it in our show notes around how she does dress, address hormone imbalances, it's a really clinically friendly podcast. But in this case, you know, you, 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 you couldn't get here from there. And you widened your lens into this extraordinarily foundational conversation, which, although you, you know, you paint it with like really good evidence, you know, talking about the change in the blood brain barrier as we age. And, and that actually, that was kind of an aha for me in the book. So, you know, it's a little bit uh, more permeable. And that is the mechanism around not tolerating alcohol, which, as I was telling you, it's <laughs> kind of ironic. I told you I don't drink anymore. I haven't for years. And that was the first. I used to like to drink quite a bit, but I couldn't handle it. Um, yeah, alcohol hits a lot harder. After yeah, it sure 40. does. And I think a lot of people don't understand the rationale behind it. It's not just your liver enzymes and, you know, what's going on with uh, liver detoxification. It's also this more permeable blood-brain barrier. So yeah, I think that's such an important part of this conversation. And as I'm sure our listeners know, those tight junctions that we have that maintain our intestinal integrity are very similar to the tight junctions that we have in the blood-brain barrier. And this addressing this very foundational piece, this the body-brain, I, I, I like that. Are you calling it, excuse me, the brain body? I guess you could go either way, brain body. Well, no, maybe I'm sure you chose brain body specifically that this term that you coined um, is going to obviously and profoundly impact the um, HPA axis without question. Uh, I, I So Sarah, you, ha you and I have been dialoguing about blood sugar. <laughs> it's been a good conversation. It's pretty profound to me. And I know you're just a data hound, so you track carefully. And it's, I, I have also experienced anxiety-induced, the um, antibiotics-induced anxiety. Um, but the fallout that you've observed over time is just tremendous, you know, with the increase in insulin. And so I think you already had that bias. You have a, a bias. Well, we, and, and really, honestly, we all are biased towards marching down the metabolic continuum towards diabetes if we're not, re, if we're, if we live in this culture. But I think you, you would probably say that even before that antibiotic experience, you might've been biased towards medicine, but then adding the antibiotics and doing the tracking that you've done, you really saw it take off. I saw it take off and I, I could actually watch it take off because yes, I was attuned to this. I mean, especially at that time I was, I think 49. And what I, what I knew was that I had a tendency toward blood sugar dysregulation, not so much due to my food because I'm so careful about my food, but because of stress. And just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm like programmed to be a sentry. <laughs> I'm programmed to like yeah. survey the horizon and look for danger and threat. So I think I probably got a pretty big amygdala 
um, I know that I'm just really sensitive to environmental cues. So yes, I knew that before I took the course of antibiotics. And, you know, one of the studies, I think it was Lurie, L-U-R-I-E, 2015, that showed this association between one or more courses of antibiotics and the diagnosis of anxiety, the diagnosis of depression, multiple courses being assisted with the higher range that I gave you, 44% with anxiety, 53% or something with depression. But what I saw as I turned this into an N of 1 experiment, which is something that all of our listeners could be doing with their patients, what I saw as I, I did my base case microbiome testing before the surgery, before the antibiotics, and then I did it after I completed the antibiotics, is that there were certain bacteria that just disappeared. I lost all Acromansia. Wow. I lost all B. longum. I mean, like wow. nothing. Zero. Wow. wow. So I, I can't say that those are the cause, you know, that the antibiotics wipe them out. But... Um, it's sure an interesting result to be tracking. So yes, I think it's important to be tracking the science. I wish we were at a place where we could say, you know, A causes B causes C when it comes to the microbiome. I don't think we're anywhere near to that point. I think we're still at the learning to crawl stage. But when you do N of 1 experiments, you can start to see, okay, here's where I turned the corner when I took that course of antibiotics. And you know, it just, it just got me, to me, this is not like some huge problem that I had. It's more that it's kind of the next sacred message that I'm meant to decode mm -hmm. and to really understand it, kind of bring, bring my best original mind and thinking to it and then write about it and share it and teach it. Yes, that's right. Um, so, so, and that's what this book is. This is, this is your decoding journey. This is my decoding journey, but it's also, you know, it's not just me because I'm not so great. It's also the rising prevalence that I'm seeing in my practice of patients with anxiety and, and noticing, you know, the way that I was taught in my mainstream medical training was that you take patients with anxiety and depression, you know, you give them a few uh, lifestyle tools and then you ship them off to mental health. And I think that paradigm is, is completely broken. And we have to be thinking about how the brain body is talking to each other. Like, what can we do to support the microbiome, to support the gut-brain axis, and to help our patients who have what have been designated in the past as mental health issues alongside, in parallel, integrated with our treatment of their SIBO or their um, hyperpermeability of the intestinal lining or um, even their disruption of the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Uh -huh. uh, I, so I guess the other piece I want to, you know, you mentioned anxiety and, you know, is one of the fundamental motivations behind this book or, you know, just the, the, the massive incidence of it, particularly among women. But, really anything that i mean we can cast the wide net with with the with the chronic issues that we see in our culture germinating from this fundamental piece that you've outlined in your experience of taking the antibiotics like 
like for instance, the fact that your diet is impeccable, and I know it is because you and I have talked about it quite a bit, and you have some pretty profound blood sugar dysregulation if you're not exquisitely dialed in. We see that more and more in our practice. And we also see these really refractory guts. And it's beyond, it is quite beyond, even though the habit and the push of our culture is towards, you know, what are you actually eating? That I think, and, and certainly that is playing a role in some of our patients, but more and more we're seeing it, um, like for you, the stress role is, is the big piece and then layer into that antibiotics and disrupting your microbiome and so forth and your and 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 your barriers, your brain and your gut barrier. But these these so secondary pieces, these other pieces of the puzzle are as profound. I mean, I shouldn't say that they're secondary, but we've always thought of them historically as secondary, when in fact now they're much more front and center. They are front and center. So I, I like that you're kind of broadening the perspective here. And I agree with you. I think so many of the chronic issues that you and I are facing and our listeners are facing need to be considered in this context. So I'll, I'll just um, maybe get a little bit more um, contextualized here. So when it comes to neuroinflammation, what I could see this pointing to was not just anxiety, depression, maybe some early memory loss issues with learning. It's also brain fog. I think brain fog is one of the first symptoms of neuroinflammation. It also maps to addiction. Addiction is something I've struggled with. I've talked about it in my books, especially my issues with food addiction and then kind of borderline orthorexia. I think it maps certainly to early subjective cognitive decline, and then later to, you know, the, the scarier diseases like Alzheimer's disease, like um, diabetes and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that she brought up this point about refractory guts because, you know, as someone who was trained as a surgeon, as someone who has, you know, I spent the first half of my career treating women who had things like endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome and infertility. And generally what I found is I could make a few tweaks and my patients would get better. When it comes to the refractory gut issues, oh my gosh, like this is the bigger project. Like this is the project that takes a few years. It's not a matter of like throwing some glutamine at the problem and hoping, you know, in yes. six or, or 12 weeks time that the patient's better. It's a, it's a much more complex interplay in that role between patient and collaborative clinician. Yeah. Um, I, so I want to, well, first of all, I just know that people are going to be wondering what lab you used. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of pedestrian in our conversation, but people are going to want to know what was your, what, what, what microbiome test did you use? Yeah, so I, you know, I'm always a little cautious about this because I don't like to go with just one lab. I can tell you, I've ordered a lot of different labs over the two years since I had, uh, well, actually, it's longer now, um, two plus years since I had the course of antibiotics. When I took a look at where we were in 2017, I sent off a few different labs. First, I, I used the American Gut Project. So I think that Rob Knight is probably... The leader in this field. I think he really understands the limitations of microbiome testing and he's honest about them. And I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah. Um, I also did 
a series of Viome testing, and I don't want to speak badly about Viome, but I would say there's less uh, scientific validity <laughs> behind um, at least the results that I got from Viome. Okay. I did uh, a lot of different oat testing. Um, I found that to be really helpful, especially with diagnosing my um, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. Interesting. So, Organic acid testing. That's right. And I did um, GI maps. I found that really helpful, especially uh -huh. with quantifying some of the, uh, the Homer Simpson type of bacteria like Pseudomonas, um, E. coli, <laughs> and others. So those are some examples. And then there's, you know, there's some really basic tests here too, the foundational tests that I used to do when I was seeing 30 to 40 patients a day. And that includes just simple measures of inflammation, yeah. uh, looking at um, glucose metabolism, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C. Although after, reading a, after wearing a continuous glucose monitor for the past year, I have to say, I think those tests are in the dark ages. And then looking at, you know, kind of basic uh, hormone profile, I tend to do a lot of dried urine testing, yeah. but I still do some serum testing too. And so that's looking at various points in the HPA pathway, as well as thyroid function and uh, gonadal function. And what, do, what continuous glucose monitor are you using? I know you vetted those as well. Yeah, so there's three different... Um, companies that make continuous glucose monitors. There's Dexcom, there's uh, Abbott, and there's Medtronics. I haven't used that one. And I've, I've always used Abbott. I've heard, at least when I started wearing these about a year ago, the calibration was the easiest with Abbott. Dexcom has since come up with a couple of uh, versions like the Dexcom uh, I think it's a G6. I think they even have a G8 now, which doesn't require as much calibration. And it's the one that Peter Atia swears by. In fact, he's got a podcast where he interviews the CEO of Dexcom that I think is outstanding. Wow. So I tend to use Abbott. Um, there's some disadvantages there too. One disadvantage is the cost. The economics of this doesn't make a lot of sense. It's used by a lot of biohackers, but mostly it's only paid for when it comes to insurance for type 1 diabetics. And occasionally a type 2 diabetic can get it paid for. I wish we could use it more broadly, such as yes. with gestational diabetes or with people who are just trying to understand how their body is responding to the food. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the whole night imbalance with you that we un uncovered was, or you uncovered was, is profoundly important. And I think it, I, I, I totally agree with you, Sarah. The, so is it, Sarah has some hypoglycemic episodes and I think, you know, and, and particularly at night, and I think that's just gonna be a game changer that we're going to see something like this, you know, perhaps it's a cortisol or adrenaline driven kind of hypoglycemic incidents. We're gonna just see these way more routinely and you know, as really big deals that need addressing and you don't have metabolic syndrome or diabetes, you know, so I, I think we're going to be ideally using this in a much, in a much more broad way. Would you agree? I would totally agree with that. I mean, I think um, there's so many places I want to go with this. I get excited. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm, and it's, so, I hope it's okay that I, that I mentioned that. Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. I'm okay. an open book. 
anything I talk about with you, Kara, you're welcome to bring up. So, you know, there's a few different points here that I think are interesting. One is I did my continuous glucose monitoring and I had a mainstream physician that prescribed it for me. At the time I was going to Forward, which is one of the kind of uh, clinics of the future that's opened up around the US. And the one that's based in San Francisco has a lot of Silicon Valley funding. And so it's, it's supposed to be doing some functional medicine as well as integrating tech. And it was so interesting talking about my CGM results with my mainstream internist, bless him. But he was basically looking at the way that I was dipping below 50 at night. Mm. And his only question was, well, were you symptomatic? <laughs> And I'm like, do you mean was I in a coma? I don't think so. <laughs> said, you know, I don't worry about it if you're not symptomatic. And I just, I can't, I'm not going to buy that. Like, I, I just don't think that it's healthy for our system to have such right. hypoglycemic dips. Like, I think there's something that could be done about it. And as I dug a little deeper and talked to you about it and sent you some screenshots, you were suggesting that I start experimenting with a meal or like a snack Yes. before I go to bed. And what I discovered was that I did have some issues with the time-restricted feeding that I was doing. So at the time that I had these episodes of nocturnal hypoglycemia, which were happening every single night, usually like clockwork at midnight and 3 a.m., I was following a 16-8 time-restricted feeding protocol, mostly pretty low carb, mm -hmm. but I was finishing eating at like 4 p.m. Yeah. And what I did was uh, I did a two-week liver detoxification. Right. I stopped, um, you know, kind of highballing the pea protein that I was having every day. I did an elimination diet where I got off of nightshades and a few other things. And lo and behold, the nocturnal hypoglycemia completely disappeared. So I liberalized my time-restricted feeding window. I'm now eating more like a... a you know, like a 14-hour overnight fast, 10-hour eating window. And that seems to agree to me, with me better. And there's some data that Walter Longo talks about where he thinks that that's less stressful on the body. Yes. And this gets back to kind of that drill sergeant personality of mine where, yes. you know, I read 16-8 was good. I looked at some of the randomized trials and I was like, I'm in. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> Sign me up for the early time-restricted feeding. Right, that's right. Well, and, and you know, he talks about stress data, and that's how that your body was. You were in, like, this, you were in a crisis, in a hypoglycemic crisis at night. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this content, you might want to know about our functional medicine clinic immersion programs available to all qualified practitioners who want to advance their applied clinical skills and build confidence in helping even their toughest cases. Delivered fully online, our program provides live mentorship option, access to our clinic's discussions of real patient cases, teach-ins with expert colleagues, and the opportunity to become part of an engaged and nurturing community of peers. Most importantly, you'll get the support you need to bridge the gap between functional medicine theory and practice. Spaces for our one-year mentorship option are limited, so early application is advised. Please visit drcarafitzgerald.com, choose the Professionals tab, and select Professional Education Programs to find out more about the options available and to apply. And now back to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. From that, I mean, I, you know, we'll, we'll also see, we can actually see 
sort of, uh, you know, cortisol, liber you know, breaking down muscle at night and then causing these spikes in cortisol slash adrenaline, um, breaking down muscle and then see, well, and you were actually going through this. So a fasting, so a fasting blood sugar in you, if you didn't have your continuous monitor, your morning fasting blood sugars were actually on the higher side, considering what you were doing dietarily. And oh, we, yeah, pre-diabetes range, like yeah. consistently 105 to 115. Yeah, which, 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 which is insane unless you have the piece of information of what's happening at night with your body. Um, and you were, you know, I, if you were tracking super carefully, maybe you would see that you were losing a little bit of muscle and, and da, da, da. Um, oh, and I, I was. Okay. I was. Well, there you, okay, well, there you go. I mean, and I see this, I see this in patients who are – um, doing a ketogenic diet, which is fabulous, and then layering in time-restricted eating, you know, all good, but we're kind of, we're just stacking on these interventions and, uh, you know, until metabolically, we really struggle with it. Some of us do. Some of us do. I mean, I think the take-home in looking at the data and kind of chewing it over with you is that it's really individualized. It's so it, individualized. And it's yeah. also, I would say women are more vulnerable than men. I see yes, men that's right. can get away with a ketogenic diet. They can get away with time-restricted feeding. They have the testosterone advantage. And women are just more vulnerable. Like they lose the luteinizing hormone signal. Yeah. If they're, if they're not getting adequate calories, they, yeah. they, they switch into fat oxidation much more slowly than men do when it comes to the ketogenic diet. Well, and Jeff Volek has known this since 2004. Like this is not right, news. Right, right, right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And if you're prescribing the ketogenic diet as, as we are in practice and you are, you'll see this in your, with women, particularly postmenopausal or perimenopausal women. But I do want to say, Sarah, and I think this is important that the that, that it was a man that I was just talking about who layered in intermittent fasting on a kind of a keto-leaning paleo, paleo diet. And, you know, he's been impeccable. He's been a patient of mine for years. And his A1C was up to six and his blood sugar was high. I mean, this is a guy, he's, you know, he's an athlete. So it's pretty extraordinary. I think the duration of, of, of manipulating metabolism eventually causes anyone to face plant. So you're absolutely right with women. We're, I mean, we're, we're the canaries. You see it with us much, much quicker, but in that case, it was a man. And I do think we're, you know, in our male patients, we will encounter that. They just may be able to be in that kind of a metabolically stressful place for a longer period of time before they, before they crash. Uh, and right. the same thing for him, his prescription again was like, hey, you know, some nighttime sweet potatoes for you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> what could be better? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I think this is such an important point. I think you're talking about sort of this metabolic stress load. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. I think women have sort of a, a lower threshold than men do, but I think we all have a threshold. Yeah. And I used to, you know, I remember thinking about the gene environment interface. And I remember going back to 1989 to 1994 when I was at Harvard Medical School and we were so excited about the Human Genome Project. We were hoping that, okay, you know, with height, it'll just be like one gene that controls your height. When it comes to blood yeah. sugar, maybe it's right. just you know, like five or six genes that control right. your blood sugar. We just have to figure out how to work around them. No, you know, the truth is there's something like 6,000 
genes, gene-gene interactions, yes. um, transcription factors. Like there's this process is so complex <laughs> and we're still in the early stages of trying to understand it in this approach of, you know, just kind of a simple, well, why don't you just add some omega-3s? That's an insulin sensitizer. Like that, that just doesn't work for a lot of people. Right, right. I do appreciate though that we're in extraordinary times and it's absolutely thrilling to sort of, as, as Richard Lord says, my mentor, the, my, the PhD biochemist at the lab that I did my postdoctorate at, you know, embrace the uncertainty, you know, and we are, and we're just gathering so much data and I love it and appreciate it. I just want to circle back. I'm curious um, you guys will link to the forward clinic that, that Sarah mentioned earlier, because I'm, I'm sure some of you are wondering about it. And the cost of your continuous glucose monitor, you probably, you had to pay out of pocket, I'm assuming. <laughs> well, so far, just, I, so. I got insurance to pay for it. I'm not sure how that's going to last. So I, I love this idea of embrace the uncertainty because, you know, I, I heard a talk at, um, Jeff Bland's Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute last October by Joel Dudley. And he's got a great uh, institution up at Mount Sinai, uh, Lab 100, that I really recommend for people in terms of quantifying health. And he's, he's got some really interesting data on three different phenotypes of blood sugar dysregulation. And then I've heard a talk more recently by Jessica Mega, where she talks about five different phenotypes of blood sugar dysregulation. So I think you're right. Embrace the uncertainty. Like this is the path that we're on. We're going to keep going. With your question about cost, we know that the cost of continuous glucose monitoring is probably somewhere around um, about 7 to $9 a day. Uh, my monitor costs me um, about $35 each. And if my insurance company is listening to me right now, they'll probably cut me off. But I was able to get it paid for by insurance because of these episodes of hypoglycemia. So for whatever reason, um, Forward was able to get this through on my insurance. Oh, great, insurance. great. Well, it's worth so, a shot then for us. It's worth a shot. And you know what a lot of biohacker clinicians do is they just buy from Dexcom or from Abbott. Uh, they buy these CGMs in bulk and then they use them with their patients. You insert it yourself as a patient. It's actually pretty easy to do. It's got a little applicator with a needle that sticks um, about a, a little less than a centimeter into your arm. And, it's, uh, and then the needle's withdrawn. So then you just have this tube that's about the size of a hair that sticks in your subcutaneous interstitial space. And that's where it's measuring continuously your glucose level. Now, let me say one other quick thing about Abbott. So Abbott's measuring glucose about every 15 minutes. Dexcom is measuring glucose about every five minutes. And if you look at the work, say, of Michael Snyder at Stanford, he has open sourced an algorithm that he, he's used in his N of 1 right. studies. He's got 50 plus people that are in his N of 1 study where he tracks 14 different ohms. And he has a way of measuring glucotype where he can divide you into normal, moderately disrupted, and severely disrupted. And he can take the Dexcom data, which is every five minutes, and give you 
your glucotype. So that's also very interesting. I wish I had an algorithm that I could use with Abbott. I end up, you know, kind of roughing it. Um, so that's another potential consideration between these different labs. Right. Oh, it's just so fascinating. And I just, I really appreciate you doing it. You know, I, I was talking to the docs here in my clinic about it. In fact, you're going to you're going to join us in, a, in in our virtual clinic in a, in a little while here and, and, and share some of your experience. And, you know, we haven't started using them in practice and I just, you know, we're sort of, we're a little bit backwoods here, but I, it's not backwards. <laughs> you, well, you're, you have, yeah, you have a reasonable amount of skepticism about how to use this. And I think that's a good process. You know, there's the early adopters, people like Peter Atia and crazy yeah. people like me who yeah, are yeah. going to be trying to figure out how to use this. But I can tell you, even if I had to pay $200, $300 for this device, I would. I would yeah. pay that every two months because it gives me real-time feedback that is really hard to come by and it changes my behavior. Yes. So I'll give you a quick example. My kids love acai bowls. We all know that acai bowls have way too many carbs, but I figured, okay, I've got the continuous glucose monitor. I'm just going to go with my daughters and have one of these bowls. I ordered one that, you know, seemed reasonable. It had a lot of nuts in it. So I thought that would reduce the glycemic load. And I, my glucose went from my base, which is about 88 to 90, up to above 200. And it stayed there for a couple of hours. Right. But that is not normal. I went on a trip to Dallas. I gave a seminar in Dallas earlier this month. And there were some grapes in the room. You know, like the hotel yep. office left some grapes. And I don't eat grapes. I said, well, whatever. It, species diversity. I'll have some grapes. So I ate, you know, maybe like 10 grapes and my glucose went up to like 190. Wow. And so it gives me feedback that is just so incredibly helpful. And it, it allows me to understand how it is the matrix of my body is responding to these environmental inputs. Yeah, that's extraordinary. It's very interesting. It's very interesting to me. Um, well, let's talk about, this has been a, a fun, kind of a fun, diver, unexpectedly divergent conversation. Today. As usual. <laughs> I know. It's really, really, really interesting. And I, I would love to use it myself, and I will, and then kind of think about how we might bring it into our patient model. However, you know, if you're paying attention clinically, I mean, we can pick up on these clues. So folks out there who may not be, um, may not, who are not using it in practice yet, we are able to, you know, we, 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 you could infer from Sarah's first morning glucose being really high, you know, if you've got a good diet diary on her, that's, you know, that something amiss is happening at night. Now, for you, the fact that you drop so low is profound, but we can already be thinking about like a dawn phenomenon, you know, there's other pieces that we could think about and tweak which we have even without the continuous glucose monitor. So there's much, much we can do. That's right. And, and we know, you know, I've been checking my cortisol for 20 years. We know that my AM cortisol is pretty high. Like that's, that's a hard one for me to control. I can meditate it down to yeah. a reasonable level. And I take different adaptogens at night, but I know my tendency is to have high cortisol in the morning. So that fits with this picture. Yes. What doesn't fit with the picture, what I want to kind of warn our listeners about is that 
my hemoglobin A1C is 5.0. Yes, 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 yes. Or less. Right. And so if that doesn't capture, you know, what happens no, there is that I've doesn't. got these hypoglycemic swings that, that draw the hemoglobin A1C down. So I think that's a place where some uh, people can Isn't that interesting? Well, you know what? I see fabulous A1Cs frequently in, this is so interesting. I was talking to David Perlmutter actually about this on, on the podcast I did with him not too long ago. Nor, and I, I see fabulous A1Cs in uh, women who are on the PCOS continuum for some reason. But mm. when you look at insulin, it's off the chart. Like yeah. A1, A1C in my experience, and I, and, and I, I and it's probably not limited. I just there. I have noticed a pattern though, and 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 I, and I don't know why. It's just something I've observed in practice. So I always get a fasting, fasting insulin. I think actually a fasting insulin is, in my experience, more, you know, really more useful in addition to a fasting blood sugar and a handful of other markers. But yeah, you can see a real clean A1C. But is it? Could it be a surrogate marker for these serious hypoglycemic dips? I mean, that's an interesting thought, Sarah. That and, you know, if you look at my insulin over time, another thing that I've seen is that my insulin can swing up and it can yes, swing yes. down. That's right. So, yep. you know, I try to keep it, I don't know what your goal is, but I try to keep it between like three and five. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a reasonable goal. I think the data suggests that's reasonable. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, right. If you've got, if you're able, if your body's able to just dump a boatload of insulin out, you're going to be tending to your A1C and it's going to be less reliable. Your A1C yep. is going to look better. That's right. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk. I want to talk about <laughs> kind of in our closing minutes here. I just, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your book. I mean, the kind of, you know, the program that you're recommending for folks, some of the thoughts on, you know, rebuilding. And you talk about this being a 40 day turnaround. Now you've mentioned to us earlier in the, this conversation, how it's a journey. It's a long-term journey of kind of nourishing your gut back to health and so on and so forth. But we know in practicing functional medicine that yes, it is this long, it, it is a long-term journey and an enjoyable long-term journey actually, because you feel pretty darn good doing it, but we can make significant differences pretty quickly. Yes. And so I think your suggestion of 40 days is entirely reasonable for somebody to anticipate, you know, noticing some, some differences. So talk a little bit about what, what you're recommending in brain body. Sure. Well, I, yeah, I love that idea because I think the turnaround actually has to be pretty fast or else people are going to give up, yeah, that's right. especially if they're not feeling well. So, yeah. you know, there's data showing that you can turn around hyperinsulinemia in 72 hours if you approach it correctly. I would say when it comes to estrogen as the master regulator of the female body, you can turn around estrogen signaling pretty rapidly. I don't think it's 72 hours. I think the steady state is probably four to six weeks. So 40 days is a better fit there. But in terms of protocols, you know, I, you and I always have debates about protocols because functional medicine in some ways is anti-protocol. You know, the idea is that we personalize and that there's not a cookbook method. But I also think we have to start with some yeah, sort yes. of this. So when it comes to protocols, it depends on the symptoms that a patient has. If the issue is body weight set point or adipostat, there's an approach that I have for that in terms of helping with neuroinflammation and with 
the hormones that regulate body weight set point. When it comes to brain fog, especially mommy brain that happens after having a, a baby, when it comes to the hyperarousal associated with um, the steps that lead up to addictive tendencies, I've got a protocol to approach that. We talked about anxiety and depression, but I would say, and also memory. Um, now that I'm over 50, that's especially right. interesting to me. I never cared about it until I, yeah. I turned right. 50. Right. <laughs> I know. So, you know, it depends on what the condition is, but I would say there's some basic functional medicine tenants here. It always starts with food, you know, um, and and with what we know with great scientific rigor about how we might be able to positively influence the microbiome. And I would say when it comes to the microbiome, what we know is that the best data is probably with prebiotics, with um, mm -hmm. yeah. resistant starch. You know, the way that I used to think about probiotics when I first started to prescribe them 20 years ago was that I use them as a replacement dose when people had a course of antibiotics and that I use them for various causes. And there's a lot of proven benefits to taking probiotics, but they're not colonizing. We know that they're probably modulating the activity of the microbiome. And so I think our understanding of how these protocols are impacting the body has really evolved over time. And then sleep is such a foundational piece of all of these different factors. I think it's so important for uh, especially a disrupted blood-brain barrier. We know that melatonin is probably the greatest salve that we have when it comes to um, hyperpermeable uh, blood-brain barrier. Interesting. Wow. Okay. And then there's lots of nutraceuticals. Um, you know, I'm happy to talk about those, but I also think that just as a mainstream pill is not going to reconnect your brain and body, I think we have to be judicious about nutraceuticals. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, exercise or what I think of as behavioraceuticals and some of these mind-body techniques that I usually won't shut up about. Behavioraceuticals, I like that. Um, so people can grab, I recommend you look at actually all of your books, I think, are incredibly useful. And there's a lot of easy reference tables and, you know, you, you're good at highlighting some of the really important statistics that we need, you know, need to just be aware of. Um, I want you, we were, so you've touched on addiction today, you've brought that up, and, and then you just mentioned your approach to it. I guess just in your final moments, we were talking about sort of food addiction, orthorexia. Um, how, how are you, or, well, well, let's say food addiction, like a binge eating disorder, and then the other, the flip side of that coin, orthorexia, but um, how, just talk about that in the final minutes, like how you might uh, address it. Sure. Well, I, I would say I had 40 years of um, food addiction before I got into recovery. So I have a lot of personal experience with this, but I think this maps to something bigger which I've heard described by others as the pleasure trap. And that is um, the way that you traffic dopamine in the body. Mm. And I know from a number of different SNPs that I have, for instance, the Compt SNP, yeah. that I have very little dopamine. Like I chew through catecholamines really fast. Mm. And you know that translates into not just addictive tendencies, but obsessive thoughts, compulsive behaviors, a tendency towards self-harm, 
such as when I had my concussion, as well as um, you know what's been diagnosed formally as attention deficit disorder. But I, I would say from a functional medicine perspective, we know that there's micronutrient deficiencies that are really common and can lead to the pleasure trap. We know that it's not just um, a psychological solution. We know that hyperarousal is a stress state yes. of increased biological and psychological tension, and that's what tends to lead to the obsessive thoughts, the compulsive behavior, which leads to self-harm, which leads to addictive behavior. So the hyperarousal, things like agitation, anger, anxiety, or panic, being easily startled, difficulty concentrating, fight, flight, freeze reactions, feeling overly sensitive or even um, numbed out emotionally, feeling guilty or shame, uh, flashbacks, gastrointestinal symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, irritable bowel syndrome, irritability, insomnia, lower pain threshold, and then uh, self-destructive behaviors. All of those things map to hyperarousal. And I think there's a micronutrient pattern that we can see with that, you know, low B vitamins, mm -hmm. uh, probably issues with methylation since I'm talking to the methylation queen. <laughs> um, and then there's a genomic component too. So I mentioned COMPT, but there's many others. There's, you know, the serotonin transporter gene, SLC6A4. There's FKA506 binding protein 5, which has been um, associated with PTSD, especially in people who went through the 9-11 um, terrorist attacks, as well as the Holocaust. There's um, various dopamine genes and even alcohol processing genes. So I think, you know, we have to, when it comes to addiction, we've got such a crisis of especially opiate addiction right now, but other yeah. addictions as well. We need to look at it in this larger context. Like, how do we really have an integrative approach? And that was even the theme of our meeting at IFM yeah. just six weeks ago. Right. So, I, you know, it's hard to do it justice, um, especially the 40 years of struggle that I've had and then 12 years of recovery. But what I know from taking care of mostly women over the past 25 years is that, yes, the literature tells us that something like 5 to 20% of women struggle with uh, addictive tendencies with food, whether that's sugar cravings or, you know, can't give up the cheese or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there's, there's a spectrum here and there are people who struggle with, okay, I know what to eat and I just can't do it. You know, like I get that 3 p.m. craving or I want to pour a glass of wine at 6 p.m. or, you know, I just, I just have to get that pint of ice cream out of the yeah. refrigerator, out of the freezer. So I think um, those are a few comments about addiction. I think you start again with your food so that you eat to cut cravings. You make sure that you're getting the protein and the fat that you need. You have to rewrite your model for wholeness. I talk about this conversation I had with Bethany Hayes about wholeness. Um, in fact, maybe could I finish with a quote from Christiane Northrup, because I yeah. think she really speaks to this in a way that um, kind of stopped me in my tracks. Yeah, please do. So here's the quote from Chris Northrup. Women today are asked to be holy in one place and then go home and be holy in another with no model for wholeness. Unless there's an ego strong enough to integrate the two, it leaves a hole in the center and into that hole, falls addictive behavior.
So I heard that quote many years ago. This is from page 175 of Brain Body Diet. And it just, it just, I felt, I felt like she had a webcam on me. Like I felt like she just understood something kind of baffling and shadowy mm. about me. I felt exposed. I felt understood mm. in terms of what women are up against when it comes to work and taking care of family and financial yeah. pressure and um, raising children and attending to spouses and supporting aging parents. And, you know, somehow we're supposed to do that and fit into our skinny jeans and take time right. for self-care. Like it's impossible. Right. right. We're expected right. to be perfect at work and perfect at home. And few of us are wise enough to see the conundrum or yeah. even better to refuse to buy into it. Right. Oh, that's yeah, that's it's extraordinary. I guess so part really what you're what you're saying is I mean it's first just sort of witnessing like that's the beginning. And yes. then the and then the I think what you describe as this you know this craving for dopamine. All yes. of these addictive behaviors are like let me get the brain dopamine up so that I can have some so I can fill this hole. Yes. You know and and so that's all of the behavior and I think the first step in this is this conversation is just recognizing it. It is. It's awareness. Yeah. It's awareness of the social contract and how it's like screwing us. Wow. It's also awareness of, okay, I've got this, like I was, my DNA evolved on the Savannah and it evolved to respond quickly and to make quick decisions and to not have a lot of dopamine around. Right. And so the fallout in our modern culture with abundant food is that I'm going to eat to try to satisfy that dopamine hit. Yeah. So I have to work around it. That's awareness, acceptance of what I need to accept in terms of biological imperatives, and then action. What's the action? So extraordinary. I mean, honestly, now being a new mom, you know, after I've been in a career for a long time and sort of just juxtaposing what you articulated, and I guess... So I know what you're talking about. I'm, I mean, I'm facing that now. But one of the one of the most extraordinary things that I've observed in my short time as mom is this like wellspring of guilt that oh. <laughs> didn't. I Sarah, like I didn't even. That was a non-existent entity in my life. Like, yeah, you laugh because you know it. Like every you know, parents just know it. Like it's like where the hell is this irrational guilt towards everything? I mean. You know, coming up, it's all around, well, around my child and what I'm not doing. I, I, it's just such an extraordinary thing. But anyway. Well, I'm laughing at the truth of it. I I know you are. No, I know you. It's so familiar. It's It's so familiar. It's so nuts. And it's just this strange thing that happened. I mean, I didn't have it before. Yeah. (laughs) It was non-existent. Kids kids do that. But kids are also, they're holding up a mirror. Yeah that maybe you didn't have before in your life. Before we started recording, we were talking about our relationship, you and me, mm-hmm. to food and how we don't, like we want to pass on a really congruent relationship to food to our daughters. Yeah. And I, I heard something else that I really liked, which I, I think takes a little while to suss out, which is regarding your wellspring of guilt and how it just comes from all sides and springs up from inside of you. I was told that when I have to choose between feeling guilty or choosing uh, to feel resentful, Mm 
like making a choice that's going to make me resentful, I should choose guilt. Like I should befriend guilt. Hmm. And I really like that. Like it's, it's served me well. It doesn't always uh, work in terms of my choices, but for the most part, choosing resentment instead, like making the choice that makes you just like stew and feel angry about it. Yes. Is what disrupts the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. It's what ultimately leads to neuroinflammation. It pokes holes in the integrity of the gut lining. That's so I think that's, yeah. that's another way to deal with the guilt. That's interesting. It is. It's so toxic. Resentment. Yeah. Um, it's such an interesting way to put it, Sarah. You know, we've just started upon a conversation that we're going to continue. I just think it's, well, maybe because it's high time for me to begin to unpack, you know, this authentic conversation around all of these emotions, you know, the drive towards dopamine, the the whole addiction conversation. I mean, we've been living in more and more of a orthorexic world in some ways. I mean, it's, and then, then, and then there's the flip side of the coin where it's not, where we see these, 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 these epic addictions happening, the opioid crisis and so forth, as you brought up earlier. And anyway, it's, it's just time for, it's just time for the conversation. And I'm just, I'm, I'm glad that you're, such a courageous woman and spearheading it and, and, you know, and also coloring it with your brilliance. I mean, and, and incidentally, I think that that's another piece of the calm T mutation. <laughs> so you, you mean that I have no filter? <laughs> well, you have no filter, but that you're just, you know, you're smart and you're thinking about stuff and you're, t and you're connecting the dots and bringing the literature into it. So it's just, you know, it's like, it's a good, it's a kaleidoscopic, um, kind of experience. Well, thank you. And a lot of that is in partnership with you. And this is all in the service of transformation. Like we've, we've got to figure out yeah. how do we serve our patients better? Yeah, like the right. way that we've approached addiction to this point has totally failed our people. Yeah. yeah. So this is in the service of transformation. And I'm always happy to be in conversation with you, Kara. <laughs> well, to be continued, Sarah, as always, yep. Yeah great talking to you as well. Thanks for, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous, wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making new frontiers in functional medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, these kind of comments will promote new frontiers in functional medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.